So we're in uh, Daniel chapter, uh, chapter number two, and I just want to go over just briefly what we talked a little bit about um, last time. There it goes. And uh, can I go back to the other slide, the uh, one with the statue on it? I know I should have put that in the mix for this week. I think Matt's going to be back there to do that for me. We'll see if he does it. So last week we had the, uh, this, yeah, there you go, perfect. Last week we had the statue that we talked about. No, that's not it. That's not it either. There it is. Okay. We'll find it. So last time we, uh, last week we looked at the four kingdoms because that's the premise, that's the base of the prophecies that we find in Daniel, those four kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he has a dream of this statue. And this is what the statue is. You have a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron. So, so in this statue, there are four different types of metals. Now, the clay is different, and we'll talk about that tonight, but four different types of metals. Um, and as we uh, went through Daniel's interpretation of the statue, we learned that, you know, in chapter 2, verse uh, 30, or excuse me, at the end of 38, he says to um, Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. You know, so we established that Babylon is the head of gold in the statue. Um, that's likely the reason why in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar gets the idea to make an image of gold, you know, because it's him. I mean, why not? Um, in, uh, you go down the statue, the arms of silver, uh, Daniel recognizes that in chapter uh, 2, verse 39. Another kingdom shall arise. Chapter 7 and 8 specifically say this is the Medo-Persian Empire. Silver, um, Medo-Persians, the, the, the two arms. Um, eventually the Persians take more control over the, uh, over the empire. And by the time you get to books like Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, uh, it's just the Persians. But, but initially it began to be the Medo-Persians and the Persians kind of took over as the more powerful parts. You've got Babylon, Medo-Persians, and then uh, down to the, uh, the bronze, which symbolized the, um, uh, the nation of Greece, um, the belly and thighs of bronze, and of course, the things that happened there. Uh, a lot of chapter 8 talks a little bit more about Greece as well as Persia. Um, I don't know if we'll get to there with this study or not, um, but there's some more information there about that. And then we got to the legs of iron. And this began what we talked about as the, the fourth kingdom. And as I said last time, uh, the, the interesting thing in the text uh, of, of Daniel 2 and, uh, and actually in Daniel 7 as well, um, that the fourth kingdom is not named. It doesn't have a name to it. It's just called the fourth kingdom. And many have historically identified the fourth kingdom as Rome and and that's the next kingdom that came along after Greece. So that is the one kingdom there. Um, but today we're living in that fourth kingdom. Because the next thing to happen after the fourth kingdom is, is God's kingdom. The, the great stone in the image. And that hasn't happened yet. So we're technically still in that fourth kingdom. So Rome, we say, um, began or uh, started to begin this fourth kingdom kingdom, this man's final kingdom. Um, and 
he talks about uh, some of the details. There's some other stuff that I was going to include uh, last week um, in some of the materials, and I'm going to try to include it this week as well. When we, when we think about the, uh, the iron, the, the two legs here, the legs of iron symbolizing Rome here, um, <clears throat> I think about the, the two parts of the Roman Empire, the eastern and the western divisions of the Roman Empire. And so sometimes those are specific. In, in 346 A.D., Rome was divided into east and western. So we could even say that, you know, that's kind of picturing what's happening. You have to think about, you know, we're going from top all the way to bottom. So the top is from Babylon, from Daniel's day, all the way to the tribulation period, which is in the book of Revelation. Of course, it's also mentioned not directly in the book of Daniel, but indirectly. So you're moving in history from the top all the way down to the bottom. And so these two legs, legs of iron, uh, we think of, I think of the east and the, and the western parts of the Roman Empire. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, in 1476, the Roman Empire died. Um, it was dismantled. Um, and because this fourth kingdom, again, is not named anywhere, we must concede in some fashion that we're still somehow in the fourth kingdom. It doesn't mean that we're part of the Roman Empire today with a specific headquarters in, in um, in Italy, um, but it's very possible that the system which Rome began uh, became maybe embedded into our society today. Um, and that might be how Daniel's picturing this fourth kingdom. Um, maybe that the uh, Roman government began this system of the fourth empire. I mean, you think about it, Rome stamped its image on Western civilizations as Western divisions of the empire reaches ways into France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, UK, Great Britain, and from there, United States, Canada, into the Americas. And I think that Daniel gives more time and description to this kingdom, um, not because necessarily it's the final one, but because its system, what it is, is kind of foreign to him. He doesn't understand it. Um, it's different than the other kingdoms. Um, when we make a comparison between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, which we'll do at the end, they're speaking of the same four kingdoms, okay, just in different terms. And in Daniel's vision in chapter 4, he speaks of it as a beast that has many different features to it. And, and you look at it and you say, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, there's a lion, there's a leopard in the picture, and there's a bear. And then he comes to a fourth kingdom in Daniel 7, and it has all these different features, makes it kind of like a conglomeration of, of all the kingdoms, like a hybrid almost. And he says, I want to know more about that because that's foreign to me. And, and so I look at this, and, and maybe it's just the simple fact that this fourth kingdom was just different than the other three. And different, I mean by maybe the way they ruled was different. So think about this. Um, back in Daniel chapter 1, the very beginning of Daniel, when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego otherwise known as uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when they and Daniel were brought out into exile into Babylon, they were entered into the University of Babylon, okay? Three-year course of study in the University of Babylon with the intent that they were going to be trained to walk and talk Babylonian, to act Babylonian, to know everything about the laws of the Babylonians, and then be sent back to the nation of Israel so they could rule on behalf of Babylon. Okay? 
So that, so that would ensure that. That was the intent. The intent was that you would train the leaders. Makes sense, right? Because if you want to rule from afar, you're going to train the leaders, the nationals, and send them back so they can rule. Same thing happens in the Medo-Persia time. People like Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, remember? How Nehemiah is under the king's rule, and he's given permission to go back. Same thing under the, under the Greece with the high priest, the Jewish high priest. They're allowed to rule. They're sent back. But by the time you get to Rome, Rome decides we have a different idea. No longer are we going to train someone and send them back. What we're going to do instead is we're going to send our man to the area that needs to be ruled. So think of the New Testament time and you think of Herod and you think of Pontius Pilate and and Festus and all the governmental leaders in the area. They were Roman citizens who were sent there and sent to rule from there. And they were sent to the different provinces in the area to rule. So by the time you get to this fourth empire, Rome, I guess, figures out that this training nationals and sending them back to rule has really not helped the last three world empires. Let's do it a little different. So to ensure that Rome would have that iron grip on the world, they send their guys back, and, and they would rule in that state, and they'd be responsible back to Caesar, back to Caesar, back to Caesar, even during the time of Acts and Paul and Herod Agrippa and all the ones. So maybe that's why the system is, is a little bit different. And instead of training nationals, Rome <clears throat> sent their men into the subjugated nations here. Um, and so you look at that, and the fourth kingdom is, is the kingdom that Daniel just has so many questions about. He understands the first one, the second one, the third one. But by the time you get to the fourth one, it's, it, there's a lot of fuzzy details he's trying to figure out. And if he um, has trouble figuring, figuring out <clears throat> some of these details, I guarantee that we're going to have trouble figuring out some of these details. Now, I want you to look at chapter 2 and verse 40. <clears throat> I want you to look what it says in verse 40. And, of course, this talks about the fourth kingdom. Verse 40, it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, and that, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. So verse 40 here is talking about the strength and force with as Rome conquered the known world. I mean, they were an iron fist. They actually used iron in a lot of their uh, building materials and a lot of the things that they did, their iron chariots. They literally just took over the world and just, you know, I mean, men have written books about this. Not Men have written, we're going to go that, to that eventually, but I didn't want to go there yet. But um, Men are going to write books about the Roman kingdom, about the iron fist with which all these Romans ruled. And look at what verse 41 says. It says, uh, Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." And as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. Now look at what verse 44 says, and this is significant, and they were right. They were just ahead of me a little bit here. Look at what verse 40 says. It says, and in the days of these kings, 
Well, that's kind of interesting. What kings are we talking about? It says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It's kind of talking about Rome and clay and all this. And then it says, in the days of these kings, as if we're supposed to know what they're talking about um, in the text. And so as you look at these phrases, ten, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, and the fourth kingdom, it says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Well, we're talking about in the days of those kings, the ten toes. Ten toes form ten kings. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 23 to 24, it says the fourth beast, okay, the fourth kingdom, the fourth beast, shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Then you go to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12, and it says, I mean, explicit. It's not like, it's not as. It says the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Okay? So I gave you an algebra problem at the bottom. Ten toes equals ten horns equals ten kings. All right? <laughs> so figure that one out. They're, they're speaking about, they're all speaking about the same exact thing. It's the same thing. So in this last part of the fourth kingdom, in the time of the book of Revelation, Revelation in the tribulation period, you have, what happens is that ten kings come to power and start ruling in this time of tribulation. They all come up at once with the Antichrist with them all together. They all come at once and begin ruling. A fourth beast, it says, shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. The ten hordes are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So sometime in the days of the fourth kingdom, you're going to have ten kings all of a sudden come up and start ruling at once. Now that hasn't happened yet. So that hasn't happened yet, so we know that that's still yet future. A lot of scholars struggle, myself included, not that I'm a scholar, but myself included with, you know, verses 41 and 42 and, and, and verses 43. And we look at that and say, has that happened yet? This feet mixed with clay, the peoples mixed with the kingdoms and all this. And it's kind of hard. Some people would say some of it has already happened in the past. Some, of it, some people would say that it hasn't happened yet. But we know for sure that by the time you get to verse 44, in the days of these kings, never has there been in history those ten kings ruling simultaneously at one time with the Antichrist with him. Okay, Never has that happened. So that's still yet future. Right? So that has to happen somewhere on the, on the stage, the world stage, before that stone hits the statue. Okay? Because, and we'll talk about that stone shortly. Because once that stone hits the statue, it crumbles all the world empires. But it hits the statue on the base where the feet are. So it hits the statue during the time that those ten kings are ruling. A lot of people have some ideas as to who the ten kings... If, if you... Um, well, I wouldn't... I wouldn't advise you to look up 10 Kings or anything on YouTube. They might give you a lot of different theories of stuff that's going on out here in the world. Um, but what the text is telling us is that sometime in the future, there's these 10 Kings that rule. And, and how that's going to happen and, and come together, I, I don't really know. The text doesn't say. The best um, idea or opinion that I can offer is probably um, after the rapture happens and 
the world goes into chaos because of all the people that disappear, that somehow the world is going to get divided up into maybe 10 regions. And you might have a king that rules over or a leader that rules over each of those regions. Because we're talking about something that's worldwide. Um, and, you know, of course, Revelation also talks about a one-world government. And a one-world government, while that's good, you get to Revelation, the rest of the world doesn't like it when just one person rules. You know how it works. They always want several people. How come that one guy gets to rule? How come he gets to be the dictator? I want to be the dictator. So these ten kings somehow, some fashion, carve up uh, the known or leftover, maybe, um, uh, world at that time after the rapture. That's, that's my understanding. Because you think about all the confusion that happened with COVID, and it, and it, it wasn't, you know, uh, it was dangerous, and, and a lot of people lost their lives because of it but it wasn't the catastrophes you think about when you think about the book of Revelation and all the things are going to be poured out, so much more uh, happening there. And we see what happened because of COVID and how easily things can just be moved in one direction quickly. Um, so that's kind of my thinking. Um, you might have a, a different way of understanding it, and that's fine as well. But the idea is that there's going to be at the last part of this fourth kingdom there's going to be 10 kings somehow ruling simultaneously along with the Antichrist together. And then what's going to happen is that eventually, um, after the 10 kings rule for a while, the Antichrist is going to come in. He's going to, the text says in Revelation, he's going to put down three of those kings. He's going to subdue them um, into, into submission. And then because of what he does to those other three kings, the other seven are going to bow in submission and say, okay, we'll give allegiance to you. Um, because for a while, it seems that the ten kings are ruling with the Antichrist together, are kind of sharing the world stage. Well, again, that's not enough for the Antichrist. He wants, to be, he wants the world to worship him. So he's going to take on deposing three of those kings, and then the other seven are going to fall on their feet and be, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let you rule now. It, it, you, you can have time to rule now. And that's kind of the second half of the book of Revelation when it talks about the Antichrist decides to take up. He wants to be the world dictator and he wants to destroy, or excuse me, he wants to, well, he wants to destroy the world, but he wants to cause the world to worship him. He wants the world to worship him. But as interesting as that is, that's not the point of the text of what Daniel chapter 2 is trying to show us. The, the, the big picture here is it's about the stone, the great stone is the picture. Now look at verse 44 of chapter 2. Look at what it says. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now let me just say this. The stone and the mountain imagery in the book of Daniel here are meant to shake Nebuchadnezzar's worldview. It's meant to rattle him. It's meant to get his attention. 
in the Babylonian religious system, the earth itself was said to be a mountain or a mountain house. Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians, was known as the great mountain. God's purpose for depicting the stone as cut out of the mountain and becomes itself a great mountain was to confirm to the king that his dream was special. It was of divine origin. In other words, it came from the gods. Now, if you were a Babylonian king and you had a dream and you know that it had religious significance as if it came from the gods, then the first people you're going to go to is your wise men because they're supposed to be in touch with the gods, as that chapter in Daniel chapter 2 says. So he goes to his wise men to get interpretation because he knows that this dream is significant. This dream has uh, a lot of things that are important to him. And, and to me, this is the reason why not only does he want his wise men to interpret the dream, but he also wants them to describe the dream. Because if he knows this is a dream coming from the gods, then I want to make sure that you also are in touch with the gods and, and that you're able to describe this dream as well as interpret this dream. By the way, another title for Marduk was called Lord of Wind based on the belief that the winds were governed by the gods. But the wind here in the picture serves the stone by removing every vestige, so to speak, so the kingdom of heaven could be established on earth. But let's make a couple of observations about this great stone. I put seven of them up here just so you can understand. The great stone, it symbolizes God's coming kingdom, okay? So if the great stone hits the, 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 uh, the toes of the statue, okay? So it's in those days of those kings, it says, in, in verse 44, that the great, great stone is going to hit the statue. So that's when this kingdom comes. Towards the end of the tribulation period is when God's kingdom comes. So God's kingdom will be established in the time of those ten kings. Christ's establishment, excuse me, the establishment of Christ's rule at his second coming during the time of these kings again, is the meaning of the rock striking the statue on its feet and its toes. The rock doesn't strike the statue on its head or chest or on its legs. It's at the very last part of that fourth kingdom. It's very specific as to where it hits and where that kingdom kind of starts to expand. The kingdom obviously will be of divine origin. It says God himself, the God of heaven, and this, this verse in in, in verse 44 and 34, also emphasize the supernatural origin of this kingdom. Verse 34 says, the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. It's signifying that this stone, which represents this kingdom, is of divine origin. It, it's from the gods, from what Nebuchadnezzar would understand. And you understand Nebuchadnezzar's worldview is that um, when the gods want to get in touch with them, they give them a vision, a dream. That's how they responded, okay? And isn't it interesting that God knows that that's what Nebuchadnezzar will pay attention to. So what does God do? God sends him a dream or a vision so he will pay attention to it and it will be significant to him. He's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in the way that is familiar to him, just like God speaks to us in ways that are familiar to us. So it says the, the kingdom will also be eternal, talking of the kingdom of God, um, verse 44, uh, it also says it will be left to another people. The fact that when each of the four empires is destroyed, it was absorbed by other nations. So when Babylon gets destroyed, Medo-Persia absorbs it. 
When Medo-Persia gets absorbed, destroyed, Greece absorbs it. When Greece gets destroyed, Rome absorbs it. But way of contrast here, no one will ever conquer the coming kingdom of God and possess it. Okay? Nobody is ever going to do it. And in fact, it's left to another people, significant of us. It's going to be left to us. Indestructible. It's best understood God's kingdom will start with his second coming. And I say start with his second coming. His second coming inaugurates that millennial kingdom. And that's where it will begin. That first thousand years, you might say, is the, is the uh, earthly beginning of God's forever kingdom. Because after that millennium is over, then God creates a new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21 and 22. And then we'll be with him for all of eternity. So this is the first part. So the first part gets to be on earth. So I always joke and say, if you ever wanted to talk to uh, some Bible character that you've always loved to read about, during the millennium, that thousand years, you've got a thousand years to do it. That's the time to do it uh, when you get on earth. Um, Because they'll be walking and talking, all Christians of all ages. Can you imagine just thinking about all Christians of all age will be there living in that millennium for a thousand years. And I don't know what kind of abilities as far as resurrected bodies, much like what Jesus has, what we'll be able to do and not do. Um, But you'll be able to talk to any believer of all of history, um, provided there's not like a long line you have to wait in or take a ticket. We'll get you in three years, you know, or whatever it might be. I mean, I don't know. But that's when you'll get a chance to, to walk around as well as visit all those that of your family that have that have gone before, not to push them aside and get to the you know important people, but you know they're important as well. Um, so it's it's best understood here. God's kingdom will start with the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter nineteen and chapter twenty inaugurates that millennial kingdom. So that great stone is picturing that kingdom of Christ coming, and it hits the feet. And the picture is the stone expands to be this great mountain. It expands to take over the rest of the world, and God's kingdom expands that way. God's kingdom, it also says, will be triumphant. Verse 44, it says that this kingdom will crush, meaning it will shatter or break in pieces all the earthly kingdoms. That is, the world kingdoms represented by the statue are annihilated. And when Christ arrives with his holy angels, all the evil empires of the earth are going to be swept away as like the wind, and the statue just completely is annihilated. Uh, disintegrates and the wind just sweeps it away as if it never even existed. It just disappears as it never even existed in the first place. And then I like the last one because he says in the text here in verse 45, um, Christ's kingdom will certainly come. And Daniel concludes his interpretation by telling Nebuchadnezzar that the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. He says, the dream is true, it's certain, certain to occur and the interpretation is trustworthy. So he says, it's going to come. There's one day when it's going to come, and you can be rest assured that it's going to come. So the key, as you look at this whole section of chapter 2, the key to interpreting the whole section is the stone of the rock, which is said clearly to represent the kingdom of God. And that kingdom, we're talking about that millennial kingdom that begins in Revelation chapter 20. Right? So the last half of this fourth kingdom, during the time of those kings, during the time of these ten toes, these ten horns, these ten kings, is when that kingdom is going to take over. And that all meshes with the book of Revelation. 
Now, at this point, um, a lot of uh, um, people still have some misunderstanding about what we're talking about with this uh, coming kingdom. Um, because a lot of people still think that God's kingdom is not a physical kingdom. They think it's a spiritual one. And it's both. Um, but a lot of times, as, uh, as I've read through Daniel, as I've studied through Daniel, there's still a lot of critics um, who don't believe that this kingdom that's coming from God is going to be a physical kingdom. Now, I don't know how you can't get that from the picture with all the details of things that are happening. But let me just give you two scripture passages, um, and then we're going to make one comparison, and then we're done. Two scripture passages. One is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. And it says this. It says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Okay? So it says he's coming back a second time. He's going to appear a second time. That same word appear is the same word that talks about the incarnation of Christ, how he appeared the first time. So the very same way that he appeared the first time, he's also going to appear the same way the second time. So he's not going to come the first time in the physical form that he did, and the second time going to come in some form that we can't see or, or can't ever know or understand. He's going to come back in the same way, physical, touch him. He can eat. You know, he can do all the things, he grow old, you know, things like that. It's going to be the same. Then there's also another passage in Acts chapter 1, the classic passage that talks about the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it's an interesting um, kind of ascension. It's the main passage in the New Testament about the ascension. And after Christ and his, uh, is ascending up into heaven and the disciples are just staring, watching this, I would be watching it too. I mean, here's Christ ascending up into heaven and you're watching it. And the two angels that are sitting here beside him and say, why are you guys staring up into heaven? Uh, the text says that this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I mean, they said that Christ will return from heaven as he went into heaven. Very simple and very literal. So Christ himself coming back in a literal fashion. He's coming back to a literal kingdom that he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Um, again, there's a lot of other passages, but I wanted to at least give you those two passages to help us understand the literal nature. Now, next time, we'll go to chapter 7. And I wanted you to see this comparison so you can connect things together as we... Uh, as we close, uh, close out tonight. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are very similar. <laughs> They're talking about the same thing. They're just talking about it from a different perspective. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their synoptic gospels all share the same thing. John is similar too, but John is also unique. 92% of John is unique. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all synoptics, all similar. Okay? Chapter 2 and chapter 7 of Daniel are very, very similar. It's just the images that are used are different images. You've got the statue that's used of the head of gold, the silver, the bronze, the, the iron. That's man's perspective. Those are metals. Those are things of the earth that are used. But you get into chapter 7, and then Daniel starts using beasts. Or, and I say beasts. I say um, 
because that's what the text says, uh, animals, you might say. He talks about animals. Because what other symbol could be more universal than animals? And you think about all the prophecy maybe that you've read or studied, and you, if you've ever wondered why some of them, a lot of animals and creatures, not hard things to understand, they're basic things, because animals are universal to us all. We know what a bear is. We know what a tiger is. You know, we know what a lion is. We know what those things mean. So when John in Revelation, as well as when Daniel in the book of Daniel talks about some of these things, when God gives them his visions, uh, he, he gives them uh, elements that are universal to all of us so that all of us would understand. So remember that God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar using images and symbols that he would be able to relate to. And why send a dream with images and symbols that's unfamiliar to that person? If God sent me a, <laughs> an image of a, of a stone statue in my dream and uh, you know, I probably ate something last night that I probably shouldn't have eaten for me to have that dream. Or sometimes dreams are realistic. Um, but to Nebuchadnezzar, this dream meant something. God sent it to him so that he would pay attention to it. He would pay attention to it. And in chapter 7, you also see another vision. And uh, that's the vision that, that God gives to Daniel in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he's even more concerned Daniel is. Well, what is this fourth kingdom about? I don't understand. What is this fourth one about? Because in chapter 2, Daniel interprets it, okay? Chapter 7, um, we're talking, uh, there's probably 40, 42, 45 years difference between the two chapters, right? So chapter 2 has happened. Daniel's interpreted it. He's probably thinking about it. He's interpreted it for him. God's gave him the interpretation, so you know he knows it and he knows it well. And so by the time he gets to chapter 7 and starts interpreting these things, and God gives him this vision in chapter 7, you know he's making the connections. Okay, So it's talking about the same thing. It's just talking about it from a different perspective. Man's perspective is this statue. It's the way it looks like on the outside. But God sees what these worldly kingdoms, these four earthly kingdoms are all about. They're really beastly in nature. The nature of these kingdoms is, is just horrible. It's the inward appearance. They're wild beasts, they're power-craving, and they're wicked. And so from these two chapters, you might get a sense of chapter 7 focuses more on the spiritual perspective of the fourth kingdom, whereas chapter 2 kind of focused more on the physical part of the fourth kingdom and what's going to happen. So I wanted you to see that those two chapters are saying the same thing. And if you had time, you could make yourself a nice little chart of something and you could trace out all these four kingdoms. Because not every chapter of Daniel talks about all these four kingdoms. Some chapters, nope, we're going to skip that kingdom. We're only concerned about the third one. We're only concerned about that strange leopard that has uh, wings on it, the kingdom of Greece. That's the only thing chapter 8's talking about. So as you read through and as you study through chapter 7 through 12, it's all about these four kingdoms. Okay, And every chapter, sometimes it has details about the fourth, all of them. Sometimes it has details about just one of them, sometimes two of them. But just understand that these two are very, very similar. And that last one, that fourth kingdom, is the one that Daniel is so, so concerned about. So next time we'll look at chapter 7. And there, there, there is, um, if I can say it, how do I say it correctly? Um, there is not anything more studied or more written about um, 
than Daniel chapter 7 for the book of Daniel. Uh, and especially with prophecy too, even with all that's in Revelation in the Old Testament, there's not more. Daniel 7 at the top of the list with all the stuff that's been written about him, especially because of the picture of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, which is a reference that Jesus made in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, big deal because Jesus gives his stamp of approval, you might say, on the book of Revelation. So we're living in the fourth kingdom. So, but don't let that scare you because one day there's a kingdom coming, this stone that's going to just annihilate the statue, and that kingdom is sure to come. And that kingdom is obviously going to start with that second coming of Christ. And as we'll start that millennium, it's going to continue for all of eternity. So see, John is just building in Revelation upon what Daniel has already revealed slowly. And it's just like filling, in a, filling a, um, a picture, an artist who draws. You set down a foundation. I don't know, I'm not an artist. My family, <laughs> they're all artists. Um, you set down a foundation, you color in all the details. Daniel sets down the borders and the foundation and Revelation, boy, Revelation throws all the color in there and colors in all the details. But it's all connected. And the good thing is, or, or the comforting thing is, is that even though some of the details are sketchy, it's saying the same thing. It's all saying the same thing. Just like all the Gospels say the same thing, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And all prophecy, by the way, says the same thing, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and he's going to come the way he says he's going to come. 